news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. Carly, can you kick us off? Hello, everyone. A reminder that this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed. It is not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each individual author. As always, refer back to our written notes for a fulsome picture. And remember all the great ways that you can support us as a podcast. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcast app and tell your writing friends about us. We'd love to help as many writers as possible. Thank you, Carly. Okay, we're going to dive in as per usual. Cece, will you read us your query letter? Dear Ms. Waters, I'm seeking representation for my 88,000-word debut contemporary YA novel, Lost on Fifth. It follows a young Black girl's struggle to deal with the harsh reality of life after bearing witness to the shooting death of her boyfriend. This novel tackles similar topics of police brutality, and racism found in The Hate You Give and Dear Martin. 17-year-old Araya Awusu is an aspiring principal ballet dancer from Brooklyn, New York. After losing her boyfriend Jalen Westbrook to a police shooting, she struggles with grief, addiction, and strained friendships, all while trying to prepare for an important audition. Alternating between the past and present, 
The story follows the budding romance between Araya and Jalen at their performing arts school, LaGuardia High, in the days leading up to the shooting. In the present, Araya turns to a dependence on her anxiety medication as a coping mechanism as she prepares for her Juilliard dance audition, deals with an unexpected betrayal from her best friend, and gets close to her dream of becoming a principal ballet dancer. But one question remains. In her efforts to overcome her grief and move on with her life, does Araya risk turning her back on Jalen, the person who needs her to speak up for him now more than ever? During my time at New York University, I took advanced creative writing classes that strengthened my writing skills. I currently have a BS in psychology and completed my MS in public health with a focus in mental health, which leads to my passion in writing stories that explore difficult topics. Thank you for your time and consideration, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Sincerely, May Afia Asari. And there is a trigger warning at the very top that says grief and addiction. Thank you, Cece. Wow, that sounds really compelling, and there's a lot of high stakes there, which I'm loving. Can you tell us how many words were in the query and then your take on that? So this query letter came in at 285 words, so very tight. I have to take a moment to talk about how much I love the concept, like the premise, the hook, the world. If you want to see me happy, give me a story that's set in a competitive subculture. Like ballet is a great example, but it could be another one. I just get so excited when I see these kinds of stories. Keep in mind, I don't even rep YA and I'm excited, right? So this is so, so cool. Such an interesting premise. It makes me want to rep YA. That's what I'll say. I will say that I think your query letter could use a little tweaking. So there's minor things like if you put your title in all caps as opposed to italics, the readability will be a little bit better. It's not technically wrong to go with italics. It just makes the readability a little less appealing. So it's a small tweak that you can make to elevate this. I wondered, you didn't capitalize black girl, right? Which is like totally fine if that's not how you would write it. I wondered about it since we have been capitalizing that word lately. So that's just a question for you. And then here's like the bigger note. We're talking about the plot paragraph. You mentioned 17-year-old Araya, that she's a dancer, that she has her boyfriend, she loses him to a police shooting, and she's struggling with grief and addiction and strained friendships. And then you go to alternating between past and present. I think you should restructure this to go present day timeline, this is what's happening with Araya. Past timeline, this is what's happening to Araya. Or vice versa, whichever one you want to come first. And then have the line alternating between the past and the present. Because right now you have that line before I find out what the past is. And if you look at the pitch copy of other similar books, a really great example is The Ballerinas by Rachel Kapelke Dale. It is dual timeline. We have Delphine as a 17-year-old. And then we have Delphine as a, I don't know, 30-something-year-old. We have that structure. We have when she was 17x... When she is 33Y, the secret of 17 is threatening to come out at 30-whatever. And then you have the line alternating between the past and the present. And it's a small tweak because really what you're doing is you're changing up the order. But it, I think, will elevate this further. I also wanted to know how the plot came together with a little bit more causality. Right now you have struggling with grief and addiction, strained friendships, preparing for an important audition. If you can find a way to show the dominoes tipping over in those things, like perhaps her addiction leads her to slip during the audition and that means that she only gets one more shot and that raises the stakes even more. 
and her best friend finds out she has to lie to her best friend to hide the addiction. And that causes the strain of the friendship. Obviously, that won't be your plot. But if you can show the causality, if you can show that a little bit more, I also think it would elevate this further. But I do want to say, like all in all, very intrigued about the story, love stories about competitive subcultures. This is an educational resource, so I keep trying to find ways to make this even better so that you get lots and lots of requests, but it's already fantastic. Like if I repped YA, I'd be like, send me these pages now. Amazing. High praise indeed, Cece. Okay, Carly. All right, I'll start with technical elements. My name was spelt wrong and I almost didn't catch this because it's like, I don't know, I skim, you know, the introduction sometimes and I didn't even catch it kind of until we read it the second time. You know, I said this before, I'll just say it again. I'm honestly not super offended by this as a human being because I'm like, okay, we're going to misspell things from time to time. You know, I will get emails sometimes from writers who pitch me and then like 30 seconds later, they'll send another one being like, I'm so sorry, I spelled your name wrong. You know, they're just, we're all human beings. So I don't really like knock anybody down a peg for misspellings. It's just like, hmm. Most people like their name spelled correctly, right? Because that makes us feel good and acknowledged and seen as human beings. So small technical element there. Next technical element is, it's really up to you, I think, but I'm noticing more frequently that black is capitalized, like black girl. I would suggest probably you'd want to capitalize the B in black. Again, completely up to you. But as a technical element, I've noticed most copy editors are capitalizing B in black. So in my notes, I have a little link to an Atlantic article just for you to kind of read and just ponder whether that's for you. But just wanted to bring that up as a technical note. In terms of length, 88,000 word debut for contemporary YA, that's pretty long. So, you know, that's just something I'm flagging as I'm like, uh-huh, that's a lot of plot. That's a lot of plot to work through. So that's just a teensy bit on the long side. You know, moving on, really strong comps. I mean, Hate You Give is pretty big, but it sets the tone, and you know, for, for what's to come here. So it didn't kind of bother me in that sense. Overall, I mean, I kind of wrote in my notes, which you'll see is like, this is really strong. This is really good. You know, I, I really felt like if I was an agent looking for a project like this, which I don't represent a lot of way, which is why I'm saying that if I was an agent who was repping YA, I would absolutely be requesting this. I agree. I think the subculture is really interesting. Just the stakes of like ballet world, that's super interesting. And just everything going on with the family and the grief and young love and just so there's just so much going on here. So while I applaud Cece for trying to elevate everything all the time, I'm always just like, a queer letter's got to do the job, right? And the job is get the request. So I definitely think that this one did the job. I will say that last paragraph about like one question remains and then the rhetorical question. I mean, I don't really think that we know this. I'm kind of wondering like why we have this kind of tying back to the original theme maybe, but to me, it wasn't the biggest question of the novel per se, because it seems like, again, the domino effects for her as a character is about her ballet dreams and, and her as a person, right? And so obviously his memory is totally worth fighting for, but how is her fighting for his memory going to help her? Do you know what I'm trying to say? In terms of like her arc as a character. So that was kind of where I was like, huh, I didn't know if that's exactly what we needed to circle back to. But again, I think it's really strong. Thank you, Carly. I'm really interested as well in the black woman being in ballet because I've read so many articles on the challenges faced by black women who are trying to get into ballet. There's excellent articles in dance magazine, dancing while black eight pros on how ballet can work towards racial equality, etc, etc. So I think there's, you know, a lot of room for social commentary there as well. Okay, Cece, can you tell us what was in those opening pages? All right, so these pages start with the protagonist waking up and telling herself it's going to be fine. 
She is dreading going to school. She's pushing away thoughts of all the questions that her classmates will ask. She takes a Xanax, which she keeps under her pillow. She thinks back to when she dislocated her knee when she was six. At the time, she didn't know about Xanax. She's about to grab a third Xanax from her bottle that's, again, hidden under her pillow when her mom walks in. And her mom is trying to be very positive, very breezy. And as they chat, we learn through the interiority sprinkled in the dialogue that her mom is behaving out of character. She's back to calling her a baby girl. She's bringing her breakfast in bed, whereas before she wasn't allowed to eat in her room because of bugs. And that change in behavior has happened since that night. So her mom suggests that maybe she skips school this week and offers to take time off work until they hear more. The protagonist thinks about how she should be glued to the TV, waiting to hear more, but she guesses that it'll probably be a not guilty verdict and the cop will get away with it and he will be lost as another hashtag. He not being the cop, he being someone else. She refuses the offer to stay home. She eats a little bit to make her mom feel better, but she's really forcing herself. And again, she's telling herself it will be fine and hoping that her mom believes it and that she believes it. Thank you, Cece. Is there an indication in the pages if the mom knows about the medication or if she's hiding that from her mom? There is no explicit indication, but as she's about to grab the third Xanax and stops when her mom comes in, to me, it is very clear her mom does not know. Awesome. Love the hidden elements. Okay, take us through the rest of it. So I, okay, once again, like the query letter, I will give you notes. That is my job. But before I give you notes, I want to say a few things. One, the framing of this, the framing of starting with her telling herself that everything is going to be fine and ending with that same comment, but landing totally differently because of everything we've learned. That is so good. Like so, so well done. It's something that an advanced writer knows how to do. They know how to frame a scene in a way that feels so intentional and tight and packed. And yet it's subtle. So such a good job. Another thing you did really, really well are curiosity seeds. So our subscribers have access to these pages and not just to me talking over here. I highly recommend that you review these pages and highlight all the curiosity seeds. I highlighted them for you so you will be able to see. And I was like, this is a great curiosity seed. This is an even better curiosity scene. The author kept specifying, just giving us a little bit more every time so that a shape could take place in my mind without ever offering explanation, right? So again, advanced writer. So many writers would start this off with, however many months ago, my boyfriend was shot dead by the police and here I am in my room. None of that here, you know? Like she has sprinkled in whatever's bugging her, whatever's not in front of her in the scene in a way that's so advanced and so, so well done. So like, excellent job. I really want to say this is great. Like this is so, so great. Like I said, I love the premise, love the world. I am intrigued. So again, I have all, all these compliments, which again, you will see when you get my pages. So well written, like you can write, you can write really, really well. I appreciate the depth in the relationship with her mom. Like everything's so great. I will say that I, given all that, don't think that this is the right place to start because she's waking up, you know? Have you made a waking up scene compelling? Yes, yes, you have. It does not get more compelling than this. It's still a waking up scene, you know? So I'm wondering, can we just start in a different place? I don't think that, I think waking up, like your story's so juicy, your story's so intriguing. I just don't think it's the best place to start. I think I'd rather start in a situation with more power and balance and 
more at stake maybe, maybe like the audition or maybe the first day back in school. I'm not entirely sure. If you're like Cece, I really want to keep the waking up scene. Here's what I would do to this specific scene. One, maybe she could futurize about ballet a little bit more. It's a huge part of the book's hook, so perhaps sprinkle in a little interiority specific to the physicality of what she must accomplish today, like the actual physicality. Two, don't let the Xanax thread die. She does hide it from her mom when her mom comes in, but then she doesn't think about it a single time after that. And I would have one more reference, like four or five words about how she wants her mom to leave so she can take the Xanax or maybe what her mom would do if her mom found out about the Xanax. Is she the kind of mom who won't even give her kids Tylenol or is she the kind of mom who, you know, I don't know what kind of mom she is. It just really depends. Three, when her mom offers to take time off work, did that give her financial anxiety at all? How much awareness she has about their financial situation would say a lot about her status as a child and what kind of responsibilities she's internalized, even if unconsciously in her mind. Four, is there any way that she could be facing a specific competition in school? Like, I know that this is a big deal because she's going to audition soon for Juilliard, but I know that a lot of schools, so for example, for regular college admissions, I know that it's very rare, for example, Harvard, to accept two students from the same class in the same school because they aim for diversity. They aim for people from all over the country, right? So is there any way that that could be woven in that she could think about a specific competitor? Maybe the competitor is also her friend, so it becomes really messy. I basically just wanted the competition to be more present in her mind to make it even juicier. But once again, this is all being said with all the applause, like all the applause, because I think this is really awesome and really great. And again, I really wish I repped YA because it's really good. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Kali? All right. I have to agree with Cece on this in terms of the waking up. You know, I actually really liked the opening line, which is when I wake up, I see red, the type of red closing curtains. Like I like that as a line. Do I like that as the first line of your book? No, but I love that because it's like, when I wake up, I see red. And then we're like, what kind of red? When you think like some people think blood, some people think this. And it was like the red closing curtains. I don't know. I just thought that was just super sophisticated and interesting. So right away, I was like, okay, this is a writer. This person can write, which is great, but we're waking up, right? And then we go pretty, on the first page, we go into the past. It was years ago when I was six. So not only are we starting in the waking up scene, we're going into backstory right away. And I love this scene though, you know, dislocating her knee at a ballet recital super interesting shows the dynamic of the family and her passion and all of this sort of stuff it's just again I can really see we're working with a writer here I'm just concerned about the series of events and just how we can make the most compelling story possible so that's some of my feedback there. We're also introducing a lot of just like stuff in these opening pages. You know, we're talking about the brother and the sister who decided to go through with the police academy after everything that happened. And I personally just really like to get to know my main character as deeply as possible in the first few pages. It's not to say that she needs to be alone. It's just when we reference other people and the things that other characters are doing in these opening scenes, we're really just drawing the spotlight away from our main character, which always makes me think, why is this our main character? If we're just like the spotlight is is roving when I really want the lens on our character. So I think it should be more like my sister who decided to go through the police academy, even everything that happened. Shouldn't it be more like go through the police academy like knowing what that did to me. Do you know what I mean? Like how do we circle this back to her as opposed to everything that happened, if that makes sense. So really just how do we keep the spotlight lens on our main character, despite everything that they're kind of experiencing and witnessing in these opening scenes. The other thing I would have really liked to know, and maybe I missed it, which is 
how long it's been. At the end, it says, talking to the therapist, I've been telling the doctor for weeks. And I was like, how many weeks? Like weeks could be two weeks, three weeks, seven weeks. And again, maybe, maybe I missed it, but I would love just to kind of get a sense of how long it's been because the mom kind of coming in and, you know, offering her breakfast and saying, I'll take some time off. I'm like, like when it was acutely, like when it just happened and all this pain was acute, did she take time off then? Like, why is she taking time off now, weeks later? I guess I'm just like really confused with the series of events because again, super interested in this person as a writer, but all of these choices in terms of the sequential order of things to me is just feeling a little off balance. That's all. But I just wanted to say that I think the choice to take time off work this week is because it's the trial that's being televised. So I think that's why. Based on the curiosity. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Your, Got it. your question you. about whether maybe she also took time off before is interesting. And actually, if the writer wants to use that, she could even say, I really don't want my mom to do that again. Because when she did that before, you know, we struggled with money or she was overbearing or it made it worse. So that's interesting too. Thank you. Yeah, that was a question I was going to have as well. Something that I just wanted to mention was in the opening line. I know Carly and Cece loved the line about the red of closing curtains. I had to read that three times because I was like, what curtains? Like, why are these curtains red? I didn't put it together with the closing curtain at the end of a performance. So I just feel like you need to make that more clear so that we know exactly what kind of closing curtain we mean as opposed to just some random curtain that's being closed. But otherwise, love the rest of it. And we really wish this author much luck. Hopefully there is an agent listening who does represent YA who will reach out. And if not, we wish you much, much success with your querying journey with this. Okay, we're now going to go to Carly's query letter. All right, I'll just let everybody know before I start that this is a resubmission. So this one was back from December 2021. So if it sounds familiar, that is why. And I won't read the little preamble that explains that, but I will read the revision. Dear Carly, I'm seeking representation for Cheat, my 82,000 word book club novel. It follows a teacher who uncovers her pupil's cheating scam and chooses a path of corruption to free her family from crushing debt. With its exploration of privilege, power, and the dark side of ambition, Cheat could sit on the shelf next to Queen K by Sarah Thomas. Its use of discomforting and irreverent humor to portray the cutthroat world of elite university admissions is reminiscent of Girls with Bright Futures by your clients, Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman. Psychology teacher Melanie secures her dream post at a prestigious boarding school in England. She strives to impress, but her humble background and troubled childhood dominated by an alcoholic father have resulted in a debilitating lack of confidence. Pressure mounts when she drains her savings to keep afloat her gambling-addicted brother. The situation takes a turn for the worse when loan sharks assault her brother and extend their threats to her. Melanie's sixth form student, Ed, has a superior IQ and an ego to match, and Melanie is intentionally horrified to discover his Oxford admission test racket. But when it becomes apparent that parents are also prepared to cheat to promote their offspring, Melanie identifies an opportunity to save her brother and recalibrates her moral compass. She persuades Ed to form a partnership, and they conspire to fix the scores of university admission tests. Melanie enjoys a newfound confidence as she seduces entitled parents and commands five-figure fees. As she escalates the enterprise from schoolboy caper to international fraud, Melanie learns how far she and the participants are willing to go and, on the night of the summer ball, just how close they are to paying the ultimate price. 
I studied English literature at the University of Cambridge. I'm now an English teacher. My current role at a boarding school lends authenticity to my novel, which was inspired by OP Varsity Blues, the U.S. college admission scandal. In 2021, I completed Faber Academy's selective writing a novel course, which I worked on an early draft of Cheat. I enclose the opening five pages. Thank you for considering my work, and I look forward to hearing from you. Wonderful, Carly. Can you tell us how many words that was and what your take on that was? All right, this one came in at 375 words. I definitely remember this one. I had to kind of jog my memory at the beginning of like, okay, when somebody tells me I've read it before, I'm like, okay, how long has it been? You know, what am I going to remember about it? What did I find interesting about it? What my notes were? So I didn't go back and, you know, read my notes again on this one because it had been a little while, which was great. So it was kind of a fresh-ish start for me. Okay, so in the kind of second line, we have, it follows a teacher who uncovers her pupil's cheating scam and chooses a path of corruption to free her family from crushing debt. I think here what I would really like is the linkage between the two things. Is it blackmail? You know, again, we know this later on what it is, but we have uncovers the people's cheating scam and chooses a path of corruption to free her family from crushing debt. Well, these are two very interesting things. We're missing our domino in the middle here about what tips this to each other. So I would just make sure that we make sure that that's super clear there. I really like the rest of that opening paragraph. I think it's very strong. I would say some of the word choice, you know, irreverent humor, it kind of sounds like you're calling yourself irreverent, which is like, you know, not usually what we, we call ourselves. So I don't know, the, the word choice in some places here sounded like it was somebody else talking about you as opposed to you talking about yourself. So I'm all for, you know, being really confident in our writing. It's just when we tip that line over to like, is it bragging? Is it confident? You know, we always have to ride that line carefully. So I just draw attention to that. Okay, next I want to point out something which is going to kind of continue as a theme through the pages, which when we're being specific and when we're being vague. So we have her dream post at a prestigious boarding school in England. I would really like to know the city or the town. Like England is a big place. So that would be an important detail to me to, to understand. The rest of this paragraph to me sounded a little bit like adapted from the synopsis. You know, it was like this happened and then this happened. And, and we kind of get into a bit of her story. And then separately in the next paragraph is when we kind of get into the school stuff. So it, it seemed like we have separate plot lines going on. And again, I don't know how all of these domino effects are kind of relating to each other. So that was a little bit challenging for me to again see the domino effect between all these events. I we get there in the end, I think. Again, so I don't think, you know, it's the end of the world or anything like that, but I just felt like it was very compartmentalized in terms of like, you know, this was happening with her and her family and the addiction and the gambling and then separately there was stuff going on at school. And again, eventually we figured this out. I like queries where we start at the top with how all of this connects and then we kind of break down the separation and, and the interwovenness. So I, that's why I think the connective tissue in that hook paragraph is going to be really helpful here. You know, a note I had here, which we kind of get to it a little bit, but I guess it's the whole like, why did she get into the situation of helping her brother anyway? And maybe this isn't something we can kind of tackle in a query letter. Maybe I'm just kind of trying to pick at something that's not there, but why did she help her brother in the first place? I mean, are they really close? Did he save her in the past? Now it's her turn to save him. When there's situations like this, I always also wonder what is keeping this situation contained? Again, why can't she hop on a plane and move to Japan to get away from this situation? Like, why does she have to be here? What is the pressure cooker situation that is making her stay in this job and stay in this situation? And I get the kind of the brother and the loan sharks and they're extending their threats to her. 
what are these threats? Are they blackmail? Are they death? Like what, I, I guess just, again, just think about when you're being vague and when you're being specific. And because I just think we might be just a teensy bit out of balance here in terms of just making sure it's the most like effective query letter possible. And then at the end, we have the night of the summer ball. I love a big event. I love things culminating in a big, like, you know, soap opera television show moment where it's like, it's going down at the end of every episode. Love that. So I love that we have things going down at the end of the summer ball, uh, but they're to pay the ultimate price. What is the ultimate price? Is it again, this blackmail? Is it this thriller situation where people are coming to murder her? You know, is it just the fact that these kids aren't going to get into an Oxbridge school? You know, I, I would just be really curious about what that means to this author, because I think there's a lot of interesting things going on here, but those are the things that I'm flagging. Thanks, Carly. I always love seeing confidence in writers. You can see we don't get a lot of queries from South Africans because as South Africans, we get taught our our query letter would pretty much be, here's my work. It's really crap. You're going to hate it. I'm so sorry for wasting your time. And so when I see people who have got more confidence in selling themselves, I always love that. Okay, Cece, your take on the query letter. That explains so much about you. I love love the content. I get emails like that from her people and just say, you know, Cece, I know the writing isn't good. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's great. Like, what's wrong with you, lady? (laughs) Okay. Okay. So two things. What happened to get her into this and what's happening now that she is into this? On the first element, because the loan sharks assault her brother, I am thinking the threats are a physical assault. That was my assumption. If that is incorrect, you really do need to clarify. And even if it is correct... More clarity, never a bad thing. So yeah, totally fair. I just want to, I guess, piggyback on what Carly said about the major dramatic question, because I very much agree. Like, this is the line right now. Melanie learns how far she and the participants are willing to go and on the night of the summer ball, just how close they are to paying the ultimate price. And that's what needs work. We need more specificity of the major dramatic question. Sentences like just how far you're willing to go and... The ultimate price, they only land if there is specificity of plot preceding it. For example, Melanie's brother uncovers the scam and blackmails her, showing up at the ball, threatening to tell the principal, and then things escalate even more when Ed, Ed's admission is revoked and he, because of a moral issue or whatever, and he tells Melanie that if she doesn't fix it, He is going to tell everyone that the entire operation was her idea and her fault and she could go to jail, meaning not just lose her job, which is what her brother was threatening, but now go to jail. So now she has to convince Oxford to reinstate him. I don't know. Like, obviously, these plot points are not going to work because there's no way I guessed your plot points. But whatever the actual specific stakes are, we need that here. Not the reveal. Don't spoil anything. But like, what are we talking about when you mention things like the ultimate price and how far you're willing to go? Because when you are talking about a story that is so, like Carly pointed out, contained, the question we have is exactly what she mentioned, which is, okay, why not leave? You know, it's almost like the me cute romance stories. It's like, okay, so if you two are like hot and single people, why not just get together? Like, what is actually standing in your way? What are the specifics? We really want to know that. I can see this being adapted into a TV show, a movie. I love that you did you did such a good job with like the setup. Like the setup is really, really good for me. It's really more what happens after she becomes this confident person who's like, you know, running this this business on the side. Like after that, what complications arise, that's what's not clear to me. So I would work on that. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly, what was in those opening pages? 
All right, so the date we have is a timestamp of 2017. They're saying Michael Mass, which is kind of like a Thanksgiving-ish, feast-ish kind of term break situation. So we have Melanie, our main character, doing her first guidance session. So she is in the room, in the library, trying to get all the kids organized. Some of them are there, some of them are late. She's kind of wondering where they are. Once they kind of figure out where everybody is and there's some texting to get everybody together, she starts her curriculum plan, which is talking about why they want to get into an Oxbridge school. Oxbridge is a portmanteau between Oxford and Cambridge about the school that a lot of people want to go to. And they get into why they want to go to this school in terms of prestige and getting good jobs and all the connections. And she's really trying to kind of get answers that are better out of the students to why they want to go. One of the students, Ed, figures out that she went to Oxford. Oxford and kind of asked a little bit about that. And yeah, that's pretty much just the main interaction. And they kind of part. So what was your take on it? Do you think we started in the right place? That's a good question. I think what my main issue with the pages was when we're being specific and when we're being vague, which is kind of what I mentioned in the query letter, because I think we're missing a lot of atmosphere. She talks about why she chose the library over the guidance room because one of the students was like, oh, we usually meet in the guidance room and she wanted to meet in the library because she wanted this like sense of ambiance and, and kind of the way that she imagined, I think, being a teacher. And I think this book is going to have a lot of emphasis on prestige and power and legacy and legitimacy, right? Like based on the query letter, based on, again, all these kids wanted to get into a prestigious school and yet we're not really setting the tone for like how she feels kind of about the situation. I just felt like we danced around a lot of topics and I also felt like she took a really passive role in the situation as a teacher. Like she just kind of was like waiting for all the kids to arrive. You know, I've never been to boarding school, so I don't know if that environment is a little bit different because you kind of know the kids in a different way because you're with them all the time. When I was in high school, it was like the bell rang, class started, like, you know, you get to work. Like, I don't know. I just found it very strange that she was just like sitting there just being like, I guess we'll just like wait 10 minutes for the other students to arrive. So it's like her position of power in that situation was not one of dominance. It was very passive. And so... That was really curious to me. There was also, every time there was dialogue, there was never like an emphasis on how it was said. It was, Melanie says, any idea where the others are? They probably think it's in guidance, miss, says Ed. But then it's just like period and like moving on. It's not like, how did he say it? Was it condescending? Was it this? Was it that? Especially because Ed's supposed to be a kind of a main character, right? And so the fact that All of this was just so casual in this dialogue and also no emphasis on anybody's feelings towards what they are saying or the repercussions of what each other is saying was just so interesting to me. I know there's also, you know, the fact that this is British and posh British people are going to act in a way that can be more reserved and kept to themselves. But in fiction, we still need to get into this like under layer of of all of this like life that's happening in this inner life, as CC would say, right? So this to me just came off as superficial it was just very factual. You know, the writing was like, it was a chance to impress, to secure a permanent contract, to belong, you know, it's missing just this like energy of warmth and depth. So I'm also wondering like, oh, is that just who her character is supposed to be? And if so, again, we need to kind of understand how she is the way she is. So that would be something I would be really curious about. We start to get to some atmosphere at one point. I'm like, yay, atmosphere. It's like she inhaled the distinctive aroma of leather and polish, the bass notes, of persistent damp in her fingers across the tabletop. The oak was worn and grooved like a weathered face. 
Like now we're getting to it. Like this is the stuff we're missing, right? Like this is what we need from the beginning of all of this kind of like storied history of the building and, and all of this. So I was just so excited when we got that line because it's super well written. I'm like, yeah, now we're getting there. So that's what I think we're kind of missing layered through here. Even the students, I made a note of like, you know, are they rude? Are they entitled? What's their energy? Are they impatient when they're waiting? The fact that they're allowed to text each other in class, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Because they were able to find the other students, but how does the teacher feel about the kids having phones in class? I just feel like a boarding school would have pretty specific rules about cell phones in class. So a lot of my notes were just like, how did this make her feel? And, you know, there's like, she says there's a knot in her neck that she's massaging. Why is there a knot in her neck? So, and it was also, I think I was waiting for the unexpected moment. You know, I was waiting for the shoe to drop. And there was just, I never felt like that shoe dropped in these pages. And while there's just so much going for it here, it was kind of how we imagine the order of events to go, which is like the guidance counselor started the conversation with the students. The students arrived in class. They had the conversation. She made the points she wanted to make about Oxbridge and prestige and why you want to go to this school. And then they left, you know? So I was just really waiting for the shoe to drop and the drama of it all. At the end, it says, you know, she, you know, she went home and drank a glass of wine. She broke her like midweek rule. So I know that there's more here. You know, I just, I sense it. I sense that there is more here, but I just never felt like we, we crossed over to what I was really hoping that these pages could ultimately be, unfortunately. Cece, what did you think? Yeah, I, I'll echo some of these comments. To me, there's two things that I'd like to, I guess, focus on. One is plot and the other is character. So for plot, tension only happens with disruption, and there isn't really disruption here. So there's no tension. We do have things like she was expecting more people and not enough people show up. We do have things like the master had made it clear he would be taking a keen interest in her additional role. So this is something that matters to her, but we don't understand exactly how or why with any specificity. So I do think that the potential is there. You just need to specify it a little bit more, add a little bit more depth so that we are hooked by the plot, right? Like talking about plot specifically. I would recommend a more specific expectation at the start of these pages and then a shift that would lead to surprise, surprise in the reader and surprise in the protagonist. That usually helps by the end of the pages, I mean. And then when it comes to the character, right? That's the second thing I want to talk about. Really, we need to connect with her and we're not going to connect with her unless we have more depth, like Harley mentioned, of her psyche. So here's an example. The line I mentioned before in the plot of, it was important to put her stamp on proceedings. The master had made it clear he would be taking a keen interest in her additional role. Does this make her nervous? Does this make her excited? Is she the kind of person who thrives under scrutiny? Or perhaps someone who fumbles if there are too many eyes on her. Different people react differently. You email Carly and say, you're going to be up on stage talking to 100 people. That is going to send off a totally different set of thoughts that would have set on me if you had emailed me saying that. Or Bianca. Because we're three completely different human beings who think about public speaking in completely different ways. And worry differently and get excited differently. So I wanted more specificity on her psyche. And I have a whole bunch of questions that I'm hoping will be able to guide you to, I guess, weed that out because I think it's there. I think you know her. I just don't think you're going into too much depth. I am not suggesting paragraphs and paragraphs of this. We're talking about one line here, another line there. I really like the way she framed a few things in her mind. So there's a line that reads, it was the passivity that offended her, the expectation of a ticket for the priority boarding lane by virtue of mere attendance. I was like, I really like that. I like think that was really well-placed. It was well done. 
I did wonder, and this is a very specific note, and I really wish the author were here so she could answer. Clearly, by the end of these pages, she's like completely offended that these students are so entitled that they expect Oxford to be handed to them on a plate, right? I'm unclear on why she expected anything differently. She went to Oxford. She was a scholarship student. She probably knows about these entitled brats, right? Like probably those were her classmates back in Oxford too. Rich, privileged, expecting the world to be handed to them. Why is this surprising to her? Like I, if it is, and if there's a reason, probably it's an interesting reason, so tell us. And if you're thinking, oh, actually it shouldn't surprise her, I have to tweak that, then, then go do a little bit more character work, right? Like this is normal. It's normal that you will question what should be surprising to your character and what shouldn't. And that will unlock a lot of their psyche and make it really interesting to the reader. Right. Thanks so much for that. Thank you, Colleen and Cece, for your incredible insights as per usual. If you want to submit to our Books with Hooks, go to the Shit About Writing, go to the Books with Hooks tab, and all the information is there. And just keep listening to the podcast to see if your submission gets selected. All right, let's go to today's guest. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, 
The shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the New York Times bestselling author of My Name is Mary Sutter, I Always Loved You, and Winter Sisters. She holds a BA in Russian and studied at the Pushkin Language Institute in Moscow. She received an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts and is a former registered nurse specializing in critical care. She lives near Seattle, Washington. It's my pleasure to welcome Robin Oliveira. Robin, welcome to the show. Hi, Bianca. Thank you for having me. It is so wonderful to chat with Robin. So for our listeners, I just want to give you a bit of background. So Robin and I met quite by chance, I think it was in 2018, when Chloe Benjamin, author of The Immortalists, unfortunately got ill just before Booktopia. Now that's a two-day wonderful literary festival run by Northshire Books in Manchester, Vermont. And my publisher sent me as a very poor last-minute replacement for Chloe Benjamin. And Robin was kind enough to give me a ride. So this feels like a very full circle moment, Robin. They were getting to chat six years later. It's really wonderful. I'm delighted. And as I said before we started recording, I'm, I've been listening to your podcast now for a long time, partly as a way to reconnect with you because we had such a good time, but also partly because I think you're doing an excellent job. It's a fascinating and interesting podcast. Thank you, Robin. High praise indeed. And for our listeners, if you are able to get out to Booktopia, do it. It is so wonderful. I'm still friends with the Booktopians that I met there that weekend. It happens every May, I think. So look online to see if you can head out for that because you meet the most incredible authors. Right, so the book that we're talking about today is A Wild and Heavenly Place. It is just such an ambitious, beautiful, luscious, incredible novel. So I'm going to read you the flap copy and then Robin and I are going to dive in. So Star-Crossed Lovers, The Birth of Seattle, an ode to the Pacific Northwest and to a love so powerful it endures beyond distance, beyond hope. When Tenement Ray's Samuel Fiddes saves wealthy Haley McIntyre's brother from a runaway carriage, their connection is undeniable. Through secret meetings and stolen moments, Samuel and Haley's improbable love grows. Then a financial crisis bankrupts Haley's family and her father impulsively moves them across the globe from Scotland to Seattle, a city rumored to have coal in its heels and easy money for anyone willing to work for it. Samuel is haunted by Haley's parting words, remember Washington Territory. 
Armed only with his wits, he determines to follow her, leaving behind everything he's ever known in search of Haley and the chance of a better life. But the fledgling town, barely cut out of the wilderness, will test them in ways unimaginable. Dun, dun, dun. So before we dive in, Robin, can you please read us the reader letter that is in the advanced reader copy? I'd be happy to. Dear reader, when I was young, my nose was almost always in a book. I read epic stories of passion and adventure, books that fed my enduring love for big historical novels. I wanted to write one of those stories, one that spanned continents and class, and most importantly, examined the true nature of love. Romeo and Juliet, I dreamed, but not as tragic. The first glimmer of this novel began years ago on San Juan Island, a gorgeous rocky isle off the coast of Washington. On the island's northern tip lie the ruins of a stone house. For 30 years, my family has vacationed near that haunting skeleton, and every time I passed by, I wondered who might have built it, who lived there, and why it lay abandoned and unheralded today. For more than a quarter century, I have made my home a hundred miles south of there, on Cougar Mountain, a part of the Issaquah Alps, a three-mountain grouping just east of Seattle. Through its sedimentary and volcanic underpinnings run the abandoned tunnels of a defunct 19th and 20th century coal mine. The last spark for this novel is rooted in my heritage. My family, the Frasers, hails from the highlands of Scotland, outside Inverness. In search of story, I traveled to Scotland for the first time in 2019. The moment I set foot on Scottish soil, I was struck by three things. How at home I felt, how closely the landscape resembled that of western Washington, and how its marvelous stone architecture instantly recalled my beautiful ruins on San Juan Island. And so began the knitting together of my characters and the disparate elements of my life in hopes of crafting an epic tale of love and adventure set against the poverty and wealth of Scotland, the turmoil of emigration, and the early days of Seattle, a polyglot town cut into a vast and glorious wilderness where industry was just taking foot and scheming citizens stopped at nothing to build a city on the sea. A wild and heavenly place is that novel. I hope very much that its theme of searching for home and enduring love will touch you in the way it touched me. Warmly, Robin Oliveira. Yeah, geez, the letter to the reader gave me goosebumps and then the book gave me goosebumps. It's just incredible. How long did it take you from start to finish to write this book, Robin? This uh, this was a hard one. I think I started this in 2018 and finished it just this year in, well, just this past year in about April of 2023. It went through many, many drafts. I can believe it. And isn't it amazing that you actually started researching this before COVID hit? Because can you imagine had you just started this and you were planning to go to Scotland in 2020 and then were prevented from doing so? I mean, would this book have happened? How much did that trip to Scotland inform this novel? Well, I do always tell people, you know, they ask, when did you go? And I said, just before the pandemic, because you say I couldn't have done it. Going to Scotland for me, I am a big creature of place, but I also, when I write a novel, I need to go to the place that I'm writing about. And I often set novels in places I'm familiar with for that reason, because I think it's essential to 
understand the train, understand what the air feels like there, understand what vistas you can see from what other vista. So I could not have written this novel without having gone to Scotland because I planned out in advance what I needed to see because I had just started to understand about shipbuilding on the River Clyde. I knew what I needed to see. I knew some locations in Glasgow, which is basically, I mean, it's a wonderful city, but it's people generally run to Edinburgh. So for me to start in sort of working class Glasgow and walking around with my ideas of where my characters might be was extremely important. And then taking the train through the countryside was really important, just so I could get a feel and an essence of what Scotland was like. I don't really want to write about a place unless I know it. Yeah, no, that's that's really true. I mean, these days we have Google Maps that's going to inform some things so much, but especially when you're writing about the past, because the landscape and the buildings change and the streets change, but what doesn't change is the rocks and, like you say, the air and the climate. Well, nowadays the climate changes, but, you know, you're breathing in the Scottish air, et cetera, et cetera. And I love Edinburgh. It's one of my absolute favorite cities. I need to get to the rest of Scotland, but I can never quite get myself far enough away from Edinburgh every time I visit. So, but in terms of outlining the book and deciding on the story, there are huge historic moments that happen in the book in terms of the crash of the banks, etc., etc. So was it a case of you first looked at the historic backdrop and said, ooh, these are very interesting, inciting incidents for my characters? Or was it a case of you already knew which historical period you were basing it on and then you did the research and discovered what happened with the banks, etc.? How much came before the research and was informed by the research or how much was the research was filling in the gaps for you? I'm a research as I go kind of girl. So I rely a lot on old newspapers. I generally seem to like this period of time between, you know, my first novel was set in the Civil War, 1860 to 1865. But my most recent novels are set around this time around 1879, 1875 figuring that any of the events that take place in their orbit, in their social orbit, would affect my characters. And sometimes I just get lucky. And when I learned that, I was just trying to figure out uh, what could affect the McIntyres in a devastating way. And I got lucky. There were there was a coal explosion uh, just outside of Glasgow that I could use and I made my one of my characters then a coal engineer who felt responsible for that and the other was the bank failure I had no idea I was just kind of stuck and looking around and thinking what could work and there they were however I live on Cougar Mountain outside of Seattle and I know that there are coal mines here. I know a little bit about the history because there's a very active history group here. So I was able to weave in some of what I knew there. So it's a mix. It's really a mix. And it's definitely a feel my way as I go kind of thing. I think that's a great way to approach research because I've said before on the podcast that research can become this procrastination tool. It's this, I will begin the book once I've done all the research. And the more you research, the more you realize, oh, I don't know that much about coal mining. I don't know so much about 
how the poor lived in Glasgow at that time. I don't know that much about this or that or the next thing. And so you just research more and more and more. And I think for some writers, it becomes this way of just procrastinating, actually sitting down and, and writing the book. So I've always researched the same way. I'll get to a certain point and I'm like, oh, shit, I, I don't know this thing. Let me go find out. And then I'll come back and fill in those gaps. So it's great to hear that, that you did that as well. Something that I would love to discuss is the idea, Robin, of this hugely ambitious, epic story that you've always wanted to tell and then sitting down to tell that story because for me there's this huge disparity between when a novel idea lives in your head and it's shining and it's so perfect because you could just imagine it and and it's living there and then you actually start putting words on paper and I find with each word I write that idea becomes less and less perfect it becomes limited by language and my ability as a writer and I was recently asked in an interview which of my novels is my favorite and I said, the one that I haven't yet started writing, because that was perfect. Is it the same yeah. for you or do you approach it differently? <laughs> yes, I had a very large picture of what this novel would be with more words in it than I was finally allowed by my publisher. And I wrote a novel that had more words in it. And I had to drop 50,000 words from the draft, which included whole subplots that I wanted to weave in. Those characters. Most of those characters remained, but they have a much smaller impact on the story. So beginning, well, it's always beginning with character, isn't it? It's always beginning with character and character desire. And so knowing now that I was going to have part of the novel be in Scotland, I then had to think very specifically about specific people in a specific place and time and what it was that they might want. And that on some level helps control the epicness of it and the feeling that that's too big a hurdle to go through. On the other hand, it makes it easier to write the novel. And then that other larger aspect of epic involved, you know, moving continents, moving through a number of years, which is kind of hard to do the first time you try to do it. And it was just a matter of step-by-step step deciding what those characters needed, what they wanted, and how they were going to move through the world while keeping the intention of knowing that it was going to be a larger movement than I had ever had characters make before. It was, it was definitely a tightrope. Yeah, in terms of that intention, so there's quite a bit you said there that I'm going to unpack, but let's start with that intention. I've heard some authors say that when they sit down to write, they write, perhaps a paragraph on a post-it note that they put by their desk that gives them the intention of the novel. And every time they sit down to write, they look at that. Or they have some photographs or some pictures. Because I think it's so easy to go down a rabbit hole and start off by saying, I want this to be this epic love story. But perhaps in the research, you discover something and another huge theme emerges. And sometimes that can overshadow the original vision that you had how do you when you write and how did you with this novel keep bringing it back to that original intention well that is certainly a great technique because I had two I had two of those sort of intentions set 
One was a quote from the movie Shakespeare in Love when Judy Dench as Queen Elizabeth says, and I just want to make sure that I say this properly, but can a play show us the very truth and nature of love? And she's talking to Shakespeare about Romeo and Juliet. Now, I'm not Shakespeare, but that was what I wanted. I wanted that depth of love. So I kept that as a post-it note. But the other thing was sometimes I'm, you know, especially when I begin writing, I don't really know what the story is yet. I have this idea, I want a love story, but I, I don't really know what it is. And it takes me a long time writing to understand some of the themes and to understand what it's about. And at some point, especially when I get in the middle and I'm thinking, what is this? I then do a three sentence elevator pitch that if I were to try to sell it to an agent or an editor that I would say about the novel. And that has an excellent focusing ability for me. And then I have to trim because it can't be about everything, even though I want it to be. And I able to look at the manuscript and understand from that point of view what it is. Excellent advice there, because there's so much packed into this book. I mean, it is this epic love story. But besides that, so for our listeners, we see so much social commentary on class, on how we define ourselves, how we understand ourselves. So for example, in the book, we have Samuel, who's really poor. And and we have Haley, who's really wealthy. And her parents are kind of nice to Samuel because he saves the younger brother. So they kind of tolerate him because Haley goes, let's bring him home and say thank you. And so they kind of kind to him in the beginning. But the mother is, oh my word, she's a piece of work. A real social climber, defines herself by her class. Anybody who's below her in class is, you know, an undesirable And then Robin just flips that on them and suddenly they become these people who have no money and they're the people who are scrounging to make ends meet. And the way you did the unraveling of each of the parents, because they each unravel independently of each other. And that in itself was such an interesting study of how we define ourselves. So how do you do that subplot justice? and keep bringing it back to the love story. And I know you say you do your elevator pitch, but how much of this unraveling did you anticipate at the beginning of the novel and how much just came through the characters as you were writing? That's a really good question. And I'm I'm trying to remember that process. When you're talking now, I, and I had it slightly in mind as I wrote, was the novel The Mosquito Coast, where the father unravels as they travel through the Amazon and things fall apart. Another look at the heart of darkness, right? And so I was thinking about the heart of darkness for the father, a psychological unraveling, as you say, or disintegration, as he has to identify what he thinks about himself, his identity as a human being, as a very competent bright, careful man is suddenly challenged by an event that he takes too much responsibility for. And that another thing happens, there's a bank failure, and he's completely broken, his sense of who he is and what he can do completely disintegrates. So he grasps at a straw. But at that time, he's already going down the rabbit hole of madness. The mother, on the other hand, Now, my mother has died, (laughs) but she was, I don't want to speak ill of her on any sense, but having watched her as a child, she grew up on the Upper East Side. And we moved to Albany, New York from my father's 
work after something happened with my father in New York City and her idea of herself she you know she debuted at the Plaza Hotel I watched her sense of what her life would be sort of become smaller and smaller and smaller until she broke in a different way she's a lovely human being my mother I absolutely adore her miss her to the core but these things do happen to people so I was thinking about a society woman who gets put into the worst circumstances possible that she could imagine. And then she does an unimaginable thing. The thing about having those two subplots going at the same time is that it reflects on the larger, any subplot should reflect on the larger question. And one of the questions in the novel for me was, how will Haley address this problem in her family? What characteristics does she hold as a human being that will be different from and separate her from her parents so that she can find her own identity and her own sense of who she is. Yeah. And here we have three characters who are experiencing the same thing, but we see the way they react to it so completely different, which of course tells us about character. It reveals so much about each of them in Haley's case at you know, continues with her character arc as she has to deal with these things, which brings us to my next question, Robin, can we talk about how as authors, our main job, it feels like is to create characters who we love and then to torture the hell out of them, especially in act two, because you put these people through the ringer. Well, that's the job of the novelist, isn't it? It really is. I think one of my early writing teachers said, if something bad happens to your character, just make it worse. Just the next thing is you have to make it worse. And the truth of the nature is that's the nature of a novel because conflict is the driver of plot. If there's no conflict, nobody cares. And so plunging, there's a certain decision that Haley makes in the middle of the novel. And I've had several interviewers say, why did she do that? And my answer is because she was lost. She was lost. She's in a completely different country. She doesn't have anything. She has no money. Her parents have gone AWOL. And she made a decision that she will come to regret. And it was hard for me to do that because I have written mostly novels of 19th century glass ceilings, women who achieve above other things, who persist despite hurdles. And in this particular instance, this character didn't do what my characters usually do. And that was hard for me too. I thought, I don't want to write a victim, but I also want to write realistically. What would happen to you if you were 17 years old and in the middle of a country all by yourself and, and you were alone and had no money? So those are the kinds of gymnastics that I had to go through myself. Like, am I really going to write a character like this? And, and I did. I decided to. You wrote a survivor, and that is when I got to that part, and I'm not giving it away for our listeners, there's a part of me that's in my head that's screaming, don't do it, Haley, don't do it. But it was so plausible. And that's the thing. When we do these kinds of things to our characters, if it's plausible, while it creates tension with the reader who's screaming, don't do it, don't do it, because the thing here is that what Robin has done is we have alternating POVs. So she creates tension with the reader because they know something that Haley doesn't know. And Haley's making decisions based on the information she has, but the reader has got more information than Haley has. So when Haley does something, the reader's like, don't do it, just wait another day, just 
you know and this is incredible how these interweaving narratives can create so much tension for the reader so can you speak a bit about how you can use that to heighten the sense of conflict for the reader because they're seeing conflict on the page but they're also feeling conflict within themselves as they're experiencing the story well i'm really delighted that it created conflict for you as you were reading <laughs> i'm really delighted about that it created conflict for me writing it so here's part of the thing about writing a 19th century novel and that is that there are things like tropes like missed letters communication in today's age, I couldn't write that book because it would be solved with the text. Everybody would have a cell phone. So that's part of the reason I love to write these kind of novels. But I had to work and rework that moment when it was revealed what was happening. It did not come quickly. It did not come easily. Finally, I fell back. My editor helped a lot, but finally it fell back on writing from the deepest point of view of the character and their desires and what they needed at the time. And so when you juxtapose those two and you have this problem of miscommunication or no communication, you can highlight that moment. You can make that moment a peak in the narrative from which you can work and from which other plot points can tumble. Yeah, very much so. And remember, for our listeners, when we talk about conflict in plot, it can be interpersonal conflict, two characters who are conflicting with each other. It can be conflict within a character's self, something that they're dealing with themselves, some push and pull. It can be conflict within the environment, with society. So there's all different ways that you can leverage conflict within a story to create tension within the reader as they're experiencing the story. Right. So... Two last questions. Can we speak a bit, you said taking out your 50,000 words and how that affected subplots. For me, that's always the toughest part because once it's like tugging a thread, once you tug one bit of a thread, you've got to remember throughout the novel, every time that thread was woven through a scene, a chapter, a paragraph, then you've got to go back, take that out. But once you've taken it out, there's holes, right? So then you've got to fill in those holes and make sure that the thing is still cohesive, that it still makes sense, even though you've taken those things out. So what is your approach to that? As you take it out, do you go back and fix everything that has to do with that particular subplot? Or do you work one chapter at a time? What is your advice there for layering that kind of editing? Okay, so the novel was finished when my editor said, you have to take out that subplot. But I didn't want to get rid of the character. So what that forced me to do, my husband teases me. He said, I wrote three novels in that first novel draft that I sent out. And I'm not sure that he was wrong. But I didn't want to get rid of those characters. I didn't want to get rid of the flavor of what they gave the novel. So I had to condense. And I sometimes had to condense just within a paragraph, a whole subplot that had gone on and sprinkle, you know, a paragraph here and a paragraph there and carry it all the way through so that I could have those characters with me in the book and with the reader and all the way through to the end so that they could participate in the climax that I had in mind that I kind of finally came to after lots of searching around for the end. So it was a matter of mourning. I had to get rid of my beloved subplots. But then it was uh, very much a holistic process going through and thinking, okay, here's this particular character. Oh, what was their arc? How can I keep a ghost of that arc in there while it supported my main 
characters and while they still contributed to the plot. It was, I would say, it was a very precise surgery as well as uh, stubbornness to keep those characters involved and interesting. That came out in dialogue for the most part. That What they said was a condensation of probably longer bits of narrative that they'd had before. Yeah, it is. that's for me, it really is the toughest part. And it leads me to my last question. How do you know when a book is done? Because when we're working by ourselves, we're like, the book is done with these extra 50,000 words. Then we work with our agent or our editor and they're like, nope, this has got to come out. So how do you know when it's time to stop tinkering and to be like, okay, it's done? Do you take guidance from your editor or is there something within you that goes, okay, Robin, you can put your hands up now and step away? Well, on this particular one, it was my editor who said it was done. She put me through a lot of steps on this one. This is my fourth novel, and I don't know that I've ever been so rigorously edited before. And so she pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and then she said, okay, we're done. I was done a lot earlier than that. (laughs) That didn't have any bearing on what occurred. But my first novel, Mary Sutter, took me 10 years to write. And in the middle of it, I got a Master of Fine Arts in writing. And one day I was working on it and I just knew there was nothing else I could fix. There was nothing else I could address. My husband happened to be working from home that day. And I just looked up and said, okay, I'm done. He said, what? I'm done. I know there's nothing else I can fix on my own. I think I changed the location of three paragraphs for my first editor for that one. And the others, because I've had editors along the way, they have much more of a say in terms of when the novel is done and when it isn't done. I can get exhausted toward the end of writing a novel, so it's helpful to have someone else say, okay, we can we can stop now. Yeah, because that's when the next novel starts whispering and you're like, I'm done with you, man. We've spent quality time together. I need to move on. It's not me, it's you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's you, for sure. <laughs> Robin, thank you so, so much. It's been such a wonderful chat. For our listeners, we are linking to the book on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Get it there, support an independent bookstore and the podcast, and Robin at the same time. Robin, we wish you much success with this. Thank you, Bianca. And this was really, truly a pleasure. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The Beta Reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. 
This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.